I don't know about you, but I forget. <laughs> and I need drawn back to the reality of who God is and, and uh, what God wants for us. And just to a place of uh, being awed again with, with uh, what God has done for us in Jesus. So, wow. Sermon preached already, right? That's awesome. That's a sermon. Such beautiful words. Such, such truth that uh, can take hold of the heart. Let me pray uh, before we... Before we contemplate the words that the present God in whose presence we now sit, <laughs> the words that he's about to speak, let's pray. Lord God, you are here and you are holy. And Lord, we are the ones this morning who are deeply blessed to be able to stand and sit and to be in your glory. So Lord, reveal your glory to us. Speak to us now, we pray, our God, from this incredible book. We might know your heart and we might know your mind. We might know what it is you have spoken so that we might live in faith and obedience before you. Speak now, our God us. Amen. We're going to spend yet another Sunday, Sunday defining marriage. And Mother's Day a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the precious gift of Eve and um, how she was to be cherished and loved. And, you know, it goes both ways, quite frankly. We're husbands and wives, gifts to one another uh, from God. Um, last week, we talked about the constituent elements of a marriage. And we talked about that little phrase that seemed to sum it up so beautifully, um, the same but different, made from the substance of, the same substance of Eve from the rib of Adam, unlike Adam and the animals being made from the soil, the earth, uh, yet different, same but different, and how that pattern is existent all the way through Genesis 1 and finds its apex at Adam and Eve, man and woman being brought together in this complementary fashion, different yet the same, bringing strengths and perspectives that, were, that are distinct and unique to each person and each gender, but creating a greater whole. It's a beautiful thing that God has defined. We're going to look today uh, at the reality of, of marriage in terms of how it's formed, how you, how you create this thing, how God creates this thing. The thing that amazes me about this text is that marriage is described to as initially in scripture um, as part of the creative act of God. And I have this deep conviction that as we read this and as we learn it and as we then experience and live it, God continues to create something. The creative hand of God in our lives as marriages are formed. Um, but the reality is, as I'm speaking in this series, I know that a lot of things that are being said from scripture are dramatically countercultural. You get that? They're dramatically different from what the culture says. And, and the question that is posed to us as we look into Scripture and we discover these things is, will we allow the Bible to form our lives? Will we allow the Bible uh, to be what it says it is, the revealed Word of God, the mind and the heart of God being spoken into the lives of His people? Will we allow Scripture uh, to be our authority through which we hear from God and then obey Him? It's a profound question. Because as we do this in this world of ours, we are becoming dramatically distinct 
I used to say, you know, as the, as the world drifts away from a knowledge of God and of his word and of his heart and of his mind, we're going to stand out as being incredibly different. I can't say that anymore because the world has drifted away from a knowledge of God and from a knowledge of his word. And when we take this book seriously, when we allow it to be our authority through which God exercises his authority in our lives, we have become incredibly unique and distinct. It's happened. It's not like it's coming anymore. And the things that this uh, book says about marriage, and today included, are, are just going to put us, if you would, at odds with the world. But I want to tell you that we here at IPC, in answer to this question of whether we'll let the Word of God form our lives, the, word, the answer is solidly yes, we will. We will accept it as our authority. We will receive it as the Word of God through which we hear and then obey God. It's who we are, and that's what we will continue to be. Essentially, there are three steps that I want to bring to you in the process of marriage formation. Um, and it's a sequence that I would suggest to you creates biblical marriage. I'm going to read to you Genesis 2, verse 24. In the first half of my uh, talk today, we're just going to leave this on the screen because that's all I'm going to talk about. Uh, this verse, by the way, is the seminal verse in all of Scripture regarding marriage. It's where we get our foundational understanding of biblical marriage. Jesus refers to and quotes this passage in two Gospels, two of the stories of the life of Jesus. Paul, as we will see, quotes this verse as well. Uh, throughout the Scripture, this understanding of marriage is held onto and promoted. It is taught to be God's will. So we're starting at the most critical focal point in the Bible about what marriage actually is. And let me just read this verse, and you'll see that three steps easily emerge from the text. Uh, verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. So there's the leaving of father and mother, there is the joining to wife, and then there is the reality of two becoming one, or one flesh, as uh, many other translations suggest, speaking of sexual union. So let me dig into this. Um, the first step in the process is that a man shall leave his father or mother. Now, you read the text, and in our culture, we would look at that, and we would immediately assume that what's being described is a physical departure from the home of. A lot of people, if they're going to get married and if they're still living with mom and dad at the time, would literally move out of mom and dad's house and into another home where after they're, you know, they get married and they move in there and then there's this experience of marriage. I can categorically tell you that is not what the text is suggesting. Because in this culture, uh, the culture in which this text was written and for you know, hundreds and thousands of years uh, uh, on, um, the husband didn't actually leave the home of the mom and dad. In this culture, the bride came to the home of mom and dad to live with her new husband. And a lot of women in the church there are probably going, oh, I am so glad that has changed. Please, no. You're not going to say that, are you, Chris? No, I'm not going to. That's a cultural uh, reality that, that, that isn't universal. The principles are in this that are universal, of course. But what is being described in the text, if it's not, if it's not physical, I want to say it's, it's, it's a leaving at the level of the heart. Um, you know, um, it, 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 is, it is something that happens inside the son, if you would, and the man, and I would suggest also the woman as we look at this dynamic reality. And, and it's a transferring of primary allegiance from parents in, in the man's context to wife. And of wife from parents to husband. 
You see, in, in, in the Semitic culture, where obligation to parents was foremost, I want you to understand this, and I want you to learn from it too. Uh, you know, the Bible said one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. It was an incredibly important thing in the culture in which this was written. By the way, it ought to be an incredibly important thing in our, our, in our church culture, in our experience of faith, because we hold on to the Old Testament as the word of God to us still. Uh, and of course, Jesus reinforced that uh, as he often reinforces what's in the Old Testament. But you see, the obligation to mom and dad was the highest human obligation that a son would have, second only to his obligation to God. So when a statement like this comes along and, and, and it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother, it was a dramatic statement then, and it should be a dramatic statement to us today also. There's a biblical scholar, I'm going to quote a couple of times, a Hebrew scholar who knows Hebrew like the back of his hand, I might say, who, who looks at that text and, and, and says probably a better translation in our culture for this verse would be, this explains why a man forsakes his father and mother. It's a, it's, it's, it's a reorientation of the heart away from a commitment to and a priority given to and an obligation toward parents, a reorientation of the heart toward his new spouse, his wife. Um, and it's a very significant thing. You see, in this, in this reorientation, in this forsaking that commitment to take on another, the primary role of the son is, uh, role of the, uh, of, the, of the groom in life is no longer son upon marriage. It becomes husband, you see? And, 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 and the reality is that when this, when this person steps into to, to marriage, his primary commitment uh, to, to, I'm not saying this very well, the primary woman in his life, the primary person uh, that he has given commitment to regarding womanhood is no longer mom. It has to go to his wife. And it's the same in, in the other order. In the same way, a bride's primary role is no longer daughter. She, has, she, she is a daughter, but it's not primarily who she is anymore. The primary role that she's embracing is that of wife. The primary man in her life is no longer dad, but husband. Um, and what's, what's, what, what is being described here is this reorientation of the heart away from parents. It's a forsaking of parents and toward spouse. Picture given is one <clears throat> really where a couple enters into a new entity, something that God forms. This, this is separate and distinct from parents. It's a picture of a couple you know, who, who are intentionally and purposefully doing this. You know, we marry people here. The groom stands here and the bride stands here. Just for a moment, picture the bride's mother and father standing here and the groom's mother and father standing here. Don't get any ideas, parents. It's highly unlikely it's going to happen. But for the sake of the discussion today, <clears throat> it's almost like the, parent, the, the son has said, Dad, I, Mom, I love you and I'll always love you and I've been your son, but today I'm forsaking you. And I'm turning to marry my bride, and she will be my heart's desire. She is my heart's desire. She will be my priority. And it's like the bride saying, I love you with all my heart, and you have been my priority to this point, but my heart's being reoriented toward this guy. And today I'm going to stand in the presence of God, and I'm going to vow my love and faithfulness to him, and my primary commitment is to him. It's a reorientation of the heart that's being described here. It's a forsaking of parents so that God might form a new entity, a new reality, and, this, and, and in this new reality, it's an independent reality from the family of origin. A new thing has been formed where people choose their priorities and they choose their way together without too much influence anymore from those who used to influence significantly what used to be. 
Now, I want to tell you, as couples exercise this today, it's often a very difficult thing. You may have lived this if you've been married, and you may live it if that is ahead of you. Um, Sometimes there is an emotional dependency on the part of one of the adult children on a parent or two. There's a need for mom and dad, they, and there's a willingness to give mom and dad's voice too much power or too much influence in this relationship. That's unhealthy. It has to be broken. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, mom, what mom and dad think just carries too much weight rather than what husband or wife actually thinks. Sometimes it's the parent who can't let go. They can't cut the apron strings, which can be hard. Parents sometimes think, even after a wedding, uh, that they can carry on as if nothing has changed, when in fact, things have changed dramatically. God has created a new family, and he's changed hearts, and he's reoriented those hearts toward one another as, as far as the couple goes. You know, and this, this is the scenario where parents interfere too much. Don't put up your hand, but you know what I'm talking about? This is the scenario where, where, where parents still seek to control and influence a couple, even though the couple has stepped away and embraced one another and and been married and and has come to this place of being a new reality created by God. You know, parents ideally will celebrate that our adult children are able to step away from us and we need to allow them the freedom to live and do and decide and prioritize as they choose. It's their way now. But step number one, step number one is a step toward marriage. It's a reorientation of the heart toward one another. Second step, Genesis 2 again, 24, is this idea after leaving or forsaking father and mother and it is being joined to his, in Adam's case, his wife. Um, the New International Version says be united to his wife. The old translations talk about cleaving, which is kind of a cool uh, word in itself. We'll not spend too much time because we're going to talk about the, the true understanding of what this Hebrew word is that is interpreted joined to or united to, because English doesn't do a very good job of communicating it for us. The same biblical scholar that I described or spoke to a minute ago said, in our culture, probably the best way to say this is that a man will forsake his father and and mother and be stuck to his wife. It's the idea of being glued to her. It's the idea of being attached to his wife in a permanent way. Um, you see, this, this, this word, which is in Hebrew uh, interpreted here as it is is, 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 is the word which is used to describe the covenant relationship between Israel and Israel's God, uh, where, where it says in, in numerous contexts, actually in, in, in English, in other uh, passages, that Israel was to stick to the Lord. Having entered into covenant relationship with God, they, they were to be glued together, bonded together, if you would. And, and highly committed to one another permanently for life. That's where we get the idea of lifelong marriage from. Entering into a covenant um, uh, was a serious thing in this day, but it's, as I say, this, this is what forms the Christian biblical understanding of marriage as being a covenant before God. And what we're talking about here is a wedding where people come before God, two people having turned toward one another and committing themselves to one another through vows for a lifetime. That's how covenants are made. In this, in this culture, again, um, covenants were the most serious commitment that, that a person or a people could make. 
It's not unique to Israel. It's not unique to the people of God. But, um, you know, families would covenant together. Tribes would, and clans would covenant together. Nations would covenant together. They would be this, this would be the means whereby the most solemn and deadly serious uh, vowing uh, would take place between two groups of people. And obviously this has happened between Israel and the Lord himself. And my friends, if you violated the covenant in this day, it was doing so potentially at the cost of your life. That's how serious covenants were entered into during this time. So as a couple comes before God in a wedding ceremony, they vow their love and faithfulness to one another. It's at the heart of the wedding ceremony. And two people end up, as a result, stuck together, glued together, committed together in a permanent way. I want you to understand the sequence of this. There's a heart change. It doesn't happen in a flash. It happens with time. Where two people forsake mom and dad, and then they stand in God's presence, and they vow their love to one another. And God does something in that moment uh, as he brings them together through the vows of permanence and commitment. They're stuck. They're glued together. And then, step number three, it says, and the two are united into one. I said in other translations, New International Version and others, it says the two become one flesh. It's talking about sexual union at this point. This, I would suggest to you, and why I'm using it, is a better translation, again, of the original language. Um, because in Hebrew, to, to, to write one flesh, and that is a more literal translation of the text, is to refer to way more than just physical sexual union. It, in, in the Hebrew mind, when it says that two shall become one flesh, it's describing the whole person, not just the physical union, but the spiritual and the emotional and the mental coming together and bonding of two people, such as is being described. See, in the Bible, sexual union creates this bond. Very literally, it's a mysterious, powerful thing, so Scripture says, um, as, as two people engage in sexual activity together in marriage. It creates this new reality. A oneness is formed where two separate people once existed pre pre previously. Um, and then that oneness is to be lived out on a daily basis and all this couple does together. I'm going to pop over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. Paul here is describing one of the many problems of the Christian church in Corinth. It's a disaster. You know, any pastor who has ever any struggle in, in his church ought to read 1 Corinthians, because all of a sudden you think, man, my church is fantastic. These people had problems. And what he's addressing is people who have been converted to Christ, but are still using prostitutes, likely in, in the temple, which was common in the day. Temple prostitution was part of the prominent religion of the day, and of course these people are called from that activity. But he writes this, don't you realize that your bodies actually are parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it, note the little phrase, to a prostitute? And his response emphatically is never. It says this, and don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, again, is joining together, he becomes one body with her, not referring only to the physical dynamic, remember that, but he is joining himself to another human being, bonding himself to her. For the scripture says, and here we're going to quote Genesis 2, verse 24, as so often happens, the two are united into one. And you get this idea. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter if it's a prostitute. It doesn't matter if it's somebody you don't know. The sexual act will bond you to another person, soul to soul. There's something going on in this. The way God has designed our being to be, 
so much so that when we join ourselves with another person, no matter who it might be, we're uniting ourselves with that person at a very deep spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical level. And Paul's, Paul's response to this is like, don't let that happen. See, what's being described here in this context? Again, sex bonds us to people. It's souls being melded together. It is a miracle of God. It is a creative act of God. You see the sequence that's here? The sequencing of heart change, turning toward one another. The vow taking in an actual wedding ceremony publicly and before God. And then the idea of the consummation of the marriage. The physical union which produces a union of spirit, of mind, of heart, of being. You know, I want to take you to another New Testament passage which I just think this is incredibly cool. You may not, but that's too bad. I mean, I think it's cool and I hope I can convince you of it. But this is a passage I want to, uh, that I want to read to you that is often read at funerals. Uh, and it's, it's, it's John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Jesus is about to die. His disciples know it, and they're, they're already grieving. They're, they're saying, how can we carry on without him? He's our leader. He knows what we don't know. He has the power of God we don't, and, and so forth. And so many things must have been going through their minds. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I come, and, and if I prepare a place for you, I'll come back, and I'll take you to be, take you to be with me. Of course, it's speaking of his return. And that's a tremendous text to read at a funeral and we are reminded of what of jesus taking people to be with him in heaven but let me read john 14 to you twice first of all now and then after what i explained to you a little bit more do not let your hearts be troubled jesus said trust in god trust also in me there is more than enough room in my father's home if this were not so i would have told you that i'm going to prepare a place for you when everything is ready i will come and get you so that you will always be with me where i am great text right now listen to this what jesus is doing here is using marriages that was exercised in that culture to illustrate his point about his return and to us going to heaven to be with him and here's the practice that he is referring to um, in in the jewish culture of jesus day a couple would marry they would have a ceremony not unlike what we do a kind of significant moment with clergy and in the presence of god and vow taking of course um, and, and after that practice, rather than the couple going home to their new home together, the bride would go home to her parents' home, and the groom would go home to his parents' home. And that's the way it would be. While that time passed for a short time, the groom would get busy, and he would start to build an attachment to his parents' home, usually, or very close to his parents' home, but usually an attachment, which would become the new marital home, the home which he and his bride at some point would live in. And when the time was right, when, 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 when the moment came, he would go unannounced to his bride's uh, home, his, the home of his bride's parents, and he would get her. And through great processional with family and friends and noise and music, they would make their way from the bride's uh, parents' home to this new abode which the groom had built for his wife. And it was there and then that the marriage was consummated. It wouldn't happen before that. By the way, think of Mary and Joseph, um, who were betrothed but had not had sexual union yet. See the picture? He hadn't gone to get her yet to bring him to the new home he had built for her. Um, here's the very cool thing, I think. Be prepared to be amazed. Guess who would decide when the groom should go and get his bride? 
it was the father of the groom. That's when he would go. He couldn't go before it. And he would long for it. He would wait, wait for it. He'd probably say, Dad, can I go get my bride? And eager for obvious reasons. But it was only when the father said, it's time to go get your bride, that he would go and the processional would happen and he would bring her home and they could be together uh, and to experience sexual union. This, my friends, is why Jesus said in another place, nobody knows the hour of my return. Not even the Son of Man knows. Not even I know when I'm going to come again. Only the, the Father in heaven. And, 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 and you see, the reality is here, what's going on is that um, Jesus is using the text, but drawing out the reality of marriage in his day. Now, let me read it for you again, and I want you to hear it through new, or see it through new eyes, hear it through new ears. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home for you. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there as the groom to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, when dad says the time is right, I will come and get you so that we will always, so that you will always be with me where I am. I think that's beautiful. It's a picture of Christ as a, and the church, which is so often described as the bride of Christ. He's the groom, we're the bride. And there's a longing in our hearts to be with him, and there's a longing in his heart to be with us. And someday he is going to come back, and he's going to take us all to be with him. And we will be together with the Lord, and he will be with his people. That's, that's our great hope. That's something that we long for. It's something that's wired into our being. But for the point of our discussion today, that was a little bit of an aside. But a cool one, though, right? Yeah, thank you, thank you. I'll get you the 20 bucks later, Brenda. But for the purpose of our discussion today, bride and groom longing for sexual union, but waiting until the right time. And in this context, in Genesis and in John 14, the consummation of the marriage, the sexual union in marriage, does not happen until following the heart change and the reassignment of priority and allegiance and the vow-taking in the presence of God and others. Sex follows wedding. My friends, it's still the case today for we who are biblical Christians. See, here's the reality of what's going on in our world. Instead of heart change followed by wedding vows followed by sexual union... We have very, very often this sexual union, with or without a relationship in our culture, I'm afraid. It's just the reality. Followed by heart change, maybe. Depends whether relationship develops and grows. Then followed by wedding, maybe. It's entirely different than the intention of God for us. And I want to spend just the last of my time with you asking the question, Why? Why does God provide this sequence to us? Why does he say, let your hearts turn in commitment to one another? Why does he say, first get married and then have the sexual, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental union together that I long for you? Well, number one, I just want to say this, that because God knows us and he knows our hearts and he knows our souls better than we know ourselves. He has a, an infinite his knowledge of us and how we function is infinitely beyond our knowledge and how we function. It's different in, his, in terms of his understanding of the way things are. And 
as with all instructions given in Scripture, they're never cold, hard rules to be obeyed. That's not to be our perspective upon them. They are to be primarily expressions of the love of God for people who He just desires to bless. Yeah, we have to do what we're told by God because God's God, right? It's part of the being in relationship with Him. We can't treat Him like He's our kid brother. He's God! But we always have to remember that God is one who loves us and he gives us instruction, he gives us commands because he absolutely is committed to our well-being. He loves us. And therefore he says, live like this. Do this. And I want to tell you, my friends, and this is just kind of getting to the core of the thing, when we have sexual relationship with other people prior to marriage, for example, um, this, God knows, it will only detract from and even make difficult the union that God intends to create between husband and wife. That's what it comes down to. Um, you see, too often, the bonding of sexuality is followed by breakup, uh, which is followed by real hurt in the lives of people. Uh, they experience this, can we call it harm to the soul, which prevents the trust and the true vulnerability which we need ultimately in the marriage which we take hold of in order to bond in a primary fashion. Um, see, the bonding, the uniting, the gluing too, um, it happens way too much in people's lives in this culture. And, and when that bonding happens, even when there's not much relationship connected to it, it is followed by a tearing apart. Try sticking anything together with glue, with good glue, and tearing it apart, and then trying to glue it together again. I want to tell you, the second gluing will never be as effective as the first. It's just the way it is. And it's the same with the human soul. And you see, God's intention, God's desire is that we would leave and that we would cleave or be bonded to and then enter into this loving, committed relationship through vow-taking so that he provides for us, if you would, a safe environment in which we can fully reveal ourselves to another person in such a fashion that the physical and the spiritual and the emotional and the mental bonding might take place in a, in a way that is beautiful and right and good and strong. See, when, when we do this without saving ourselves till marriage, we will bring hurts and we will bring baggage into our ultimate relationship. Um, we'll bring, we will bring distrust. We will bring a, a, a lessened capacity to bond. Um, and God says, I don't want that for you. God says, for my people whom I love, Marry in this fashion. Do it this way. You see, we, we come to that place. Um, and so often if there's been sexual union otherwise, we go into marriage. I've even spoken to people and they say, you know, I love my spouse. I want to be married to my spouse, but there's a, there's a place in my heart for this other guy or this other gal. And that's because somebody bonded to another guy or another gal prior to marrying the person that God brought into his or her life like God brought Eve into Adam's life. Um, and it's almost like there's an interference in the relationship of marriage. 
Sometimes without adequate bonding, there are struggles. <laughs> A struggle to, to um, really become, to, to walk away from an independence and, and find this unity, this deep connecting of soul, body, mind, and heart. So that in marriage, you have people who struggle with what's called interdependence, this, this playing out of the reality of, 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 of what marriage can actually be and what we all long for it to be. You see, there's, a, there's often a difficulty in really trusting in intimacy. There's, there's a struggle of being vulnerable, fully and completely vulnerable with this person that God has given to me because when I've done so before, it always ended up in hurt. Um, my friends, God knows you better than you know you. And he knows me better than I know me. And he knows how our souls function. And he comes along as a father who is absolutely committed to the well-being of his children. And he says, first, heart reorientation in terms of commitment. Vows publicly taken before me and before family and friends publicly. And by the way, is a huge difference between saying, well, I'm as committed to my boyfriend as, as I am to as anybody who's actually married. I want to tell you there's a huge difference between somebody who is willing to stand before God and the public and make a vow of love and faithfulness than someone who hasn't. That's just a reality. I've talked to people who said, I didn't think there was a difference until I got married. <laughs> and then they realized that the difference is real. God wants you he wants us, he wants his people to come into this relationship in such a fashion that they are able to trust, that they are able to be vulnerable, that they are able to be intimate, that they are able to bond in such a fashion that they have this reality created by the living God who designed us and our bodies and our souls to live together in beautiful intimacy and unity. And as a result, he says, no sex before marriage, no sex out of marriage, outside of marriage. My friends, you listen to me talk and, and you go, this is different. <laughs> this is radical stuff in our culture. And I go, yeah. 100 years ago, 50 years ago, it wasn't. Today it is. But we're called to be a different people. You know that. So what do you do? What do you do? Young people who are here today, can I just say one thing? Well, not really, but start with this. Trust God. Literally trust God. God in this. If you want God's best for you in marriage, do what he says and wait. And use these years to learn to grow in Christ and to be transformed by his spirit. I know these years, especially when you fall in love, there's this powerful desire for intimacy. God gave, that, gave it to us. It's good. But in these years or months prior to an actual wedding, can I suggest that you give yourself to learn some incredibly important things like self-control, like self-denial? This world does not believe in such things. The Bible does. And I want to tell you, if you go into marriage having learned self-control and having practiced self-denial so much so that you practice it in your life, you will be a far better husband and you will be a far better wife. Anybody who's married will tell you that. Because good marriages need self-control and they need self-denial. Good parenting, same thing. And can I suggest to you that in these years you learn how to rely on the Holy Spirit of God 
to enable you. Let the Holy Spirit teach you what it means to live a godly, pure life before the Lord. God will empower you to do what seems incredibly hard and maybe even impossible. God can do that. I want to read 2 Timothy 2.22. I could preach a whole sermon on this and maybe will someday. But it says this, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. <laughs> Remember Joseph when he was sold? This is the Old Testament, Joseph from Genesis. He was sold into slavery and he was bought by a man named Potiphar and Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, grabbed his cloak. What did he do when, he was, when someone's trying to seduce him? The, the, the temptation was there. He literally ran out of the house, the Bible says. As Christian young people, or I guess as we grow up also, the Bible says run away from temptation. Run from it. Don't put yourself in a position where you could easily fall into temptation. Just don't do it. Form your lives around these principles as I pre- br- briefly give them to you. And it says, instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Pursue them. Run after those things. Let Christ form you in these ways as you wait for the person of God's calling in your life or for the marriage day, which is to come. Um, my friends, I want to tell you, what we seek, we will kind of get to in the end. Run after the thing, run away from temptation and sin and form your life to that end and run toward the things which are going to bring good results into your experience. By the way, if you're really trying to live a holy life before God, I would suggest watching a lot of sexually explicit material in movies on television or reading about it in books is a really bad idea. Duh. But in this culture, that doesn't seem to register in anybody's head anymore. To live a holy life with God is just not external. It's in the mind and it's in the heart. Jesus made that clear. So just stay away from that stuff. And by the way, I don't think it ends when you get married. I think it's for all of us to to grapple with. And then the latter point, enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. What does that say? If you really want to honor God, as Paul said previously, with your bodies... Hang out with people, literally, numerous people, (laughs) rather than being together all the time on your own, who are committed to the same things that you are in terms of sexuality and other areas. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Let them encourage you, and you encourage them, and be open and honest about this struggle, because it is a real struggle. It's hard to honor God in these ways. Let that verse form your lives, young people. And experience in the end what God wants for you by doing everything in your power to make it a reality. And to avoid the harm that can be done to your soul uh, through sexuality. What about those, th- those people, just briefly, who have already, shall we say, done things differently? Well, all I can say, and it's short and it's clear, but it's probably the most important thing I can say is, number one, seek forgiveness for what you have done. And then repent of it. Repent means having asked God to forgive me for doing the thing that I, have, that, that I have done which is wrong in his sight. I need to change my mind about it and I need to turn away from it and walk away from it. Don't do it anymore. That's the call of God in the lives of his people who have done things other than he would have desired. And allow the truth of God and his power to heal and restore what has been lost. Um, You see, my friends, sin, whether well-intentioned or otherwise, always has destructive consequences in our lives. I think if you think about it, you'll admit that to be true. This is biblical principle I'm describing to you. 
It always hurts us. That's why God tells us not to do it, because he loves us so much. So we confess and we repent and we go away. And God, but God will restore what has been lost. He will heal. It won't be easy. It'll be a far greater struggle than if we had obeyed him in the first place. But he can bring us to that place in that precious relationship, which he ultimately provides to us, where we can trust again, where we can be vulnerable again, where we can really give ourselves to another person, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, in the way that God intended. God can do remarkable and beautiful things as long as we simply let him have his way in us through obedience, through faith. I want to read Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 as I conclude today. Uh, this verse I've referred to, these verses, several times in this series. But I want to read it to you because I want to tell you they're striking, striking truths. God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Before we go on, do you get that? You do not think like God naturally. I don't. I'm not God. I'm not even divine. I'm just a, a human. I'm a, I'm a created thing. So are you. We don't think like God, particularly since the fall, which comes in Genesis chapter 3, and sin infiltrates our lives and impacts every part of our being, including our minds. We don't think God's thoughts. We have to go to the book to figure them out. That's why it's so precious and significant. So my ways are far beyond anything you could even imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Please understand this. What seems right to a man, the Bible says, ends in what? Destruction, death. So often. But life is found in Christ and in the truth the word of God. I'm going to read one more verse. I actually skipped it. I missed it earlier. I'm going to read to you now. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. This is the verse just after Paul's instruction to the Corinthian people about um, not engaging in prostitution because of the bonding that we create with a, with a prostitute. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. And here it is. So you must honor God, your body. My friends, this is countercultural. It is radical. It'll seem inane to many people. Craziness, stupidity based on the cultural values which have taken hold in our, in our country. But this is the way of God. And I encourage you to trust him and to do everything in your power to live out the reality of what we, as the followers of Jesus, are called to in him. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, you are forming for yourself a people. And that people uh, is called to live in a unique and a distinctive way, not to live... As Israel was told way back in the Old Testament, uh, like the nations which surrounded it, um, God, we're called to live in a unique way, not to live as the culture lives which surrounds us. We are called to, to take hold of your thoughts. As bizarre and as crazy and as ridiculous as they might seem to some. And we are to put them into practice through faith and obedience. 
So God, I would pray for people here today who are in relationship but not yet married. I just pray that you would give them your grace and your power to live pure lives before you. God, I pray that you would give them a vision for marriage that you have for them, that they might envision what God's best is for them and then form their lives in such a fashion that ultimately they might take hold of it. God, we think of Adam being presented with Eve and you creating something. God, you have someone for most of us. And uh, you just say, in the meantime, just hold on. Trust me, do things my way and I will bless you. So I pray for those people, God, who are waiting and maybe even have a struggle in the wait, but I pray that you'll empower them and that you'll enable them to give them the strength that they need to trust you and to obey you. God, I pray too for those folks who may have lived differently in the past and um, they need you now to come and bring healing and restoration to restore what has been lost so that they too might have a marriage that, uh, that, that, that takes hold of what you desire for them. And Lord, as trust is rebuilt and a capacity to be vulnerable and to reveal self and give self, Lord, while that might not be an easy journey, I pray that you'll bring significant healing to them, healing to their souls, so that they might know your blessing too. Father, we thank you for your word, this book that is alive, powerful, and true. Help us to be a people of faith who take it and embrace it and who believe it and then who live it out. That we might know your best for us, that we might find joy and life in and through our relationship with Christ. God, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy. song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. Sing a new song it's on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of kings. And I will adore you Thank you.
is seen in honor, strength, and glory and power be. To you, the only wise King. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of kings. You are Adore you.